When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Thursday morning, the 1st of November, with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. 9,698 people are in emergency accommodation uh, this morning. People without homes, living in hostels, hotels and B&Bs. 3,829 of those are children. That's the official figure and, as you know, it's a figure that's disputed for many reasons. Some argue the actual number is as many as 15,000 people who are homeless. One reason the official figure is disputed is that 1,600 people, including 981 children, have been removed from the statistics this year alone. Local authorities told the Irish Times this week none of these people are deemed to have been housed. They do not have a lease with tenants' rights and that their accommodation is wholly or partially funded through what they call Section 10 funding, specifically for homeless accommodation. They also say that the people involved are recorded on PASS. That's the National Homeless Database System. Damien English is Minister of State with Responsibility for Housing and Fine Gael TD in Meath West. He joins us uh, this morning. Good morning to you, Minister, and thanks for joining us. Uh, whatever about the actual figure, the fact is undisputed that the numbers are rising. Uh, good morning, Michael, and morning to your listeners as well. Ab- look, absolutely, the figures are far too high. And I mean, in, in every debate, in every discussion we have, in every policy meeting we have in our department, that's the mm. first thing that everyone recognises. I mean, nobody wants the figures to be this high. Uh, they're extremely high. But we also have to recognise that there's a fair bit of movement through that system. So while the numbers are still very high, uh, in any given month, we are finding homes for hundreds of people and we're preventing many more from becoming homeless. So if you take Dublin as, a, as an example, in the month of September, which we're now reviewing, 119 families were prevented from going into homelessness, where in the past would have ended up in a homeless situation. Mm. So we're able, to, we're able to intervene earlier and try and stem that tide of coming into homelessness. Right. Uh, but also are some 40, people more sorry, homeless than others? Uh, I want to finish the point, sorry. Mm. Um, 45 families also left uh, a homeless situation. So... If you take Dublin, where the, where the main pressure zone yeah. is, mm. it's the trends there are beginning to come mm. down slowly but surely. Yeah, but Minister, but the argument you're making mm. is like saying, you know, that as people die, people are born. 
I mean, no, you know, that the population no, hasn't the, really the, changed that much because as many people die as those are, oh, are sorry, born. Mate, you're making a very uh, you're I mean, a, a flawed argument. I, wanna, I, I, the I, I I'm think you're making is, a very flawed no, argument, Minister. The, 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 fa- the fact is that there's at least 10,000, mm. if not 15,000 people who are homeless in, in this country, yeah, regardless but, of how many people okay, have come yeah, out of homelessness. Yeah, but the point I'm trying to make is, OK, two or three years ago, uh, when, when the first major increase in homelessness happened and built mm. over the last couple of years, it would have been a, a normal situation at that t- for a homeless person to be expecting to be in a hotel for a year or two years. Uh, what I'm saying is in the last year alone, uh, over 5,000 adults left that situation and are there, they're now in a home. Mm. The difficulty is, and you're absolutely right, another 5,000 mm. have practically come okay. into the system yeah. and presented. But, but we do find them a solution and in, in the majority of cases it's less than six months they're back out of emergency accommodation into a home. Now there are still some very, very difficult cases, very, very sad cases mm. where families end up are, are still long-term uh, homes. But if you keep right? looking but, at it that way it's going to continue, isn't no, but, it? Because but, as people get housed other people are going to need housing. Well, in no, the same way that if people Die, other people are yeah, born. But, but just no, so what? So what's happened there is the reason people are beginning to move out of a homeless situation into a house is because we're now finding more solutions. There's new houses coming on, right? And and we'll go into that in a second. So mm. that's how you solve this eventually. The difficulty is it, it, the, the same numbers are still presenting as homeless. So we have to keep we have to produce more and more houses. But you had a backlog there for about two or three years where there was no houses being built. So now there are. So I've I've no doubt that we will get on top of these figures as the supply increases. Mm. And next year we do reach that magic number of ten thousand new social houses. What and, about and an, that's how you solve? What about a, an independent process of counting the figures? Well, this is independent. It's the CSO. It's mm. independent of us and, and that's what we're doing and we've asked them to do figures. So we, we publish the figures mm. but as a department we don't But you've count reclassified them. people. Uh, okay, well what, mm. what's happened there is because there's some confusion over, over what mm. reclassification is. This is what mm. it actually There's also is. people in, in women's refuges so there's uh, people in asylum yeah. centres. You don't have the there's, numbers for the they, asylum centres, do you? They, those, they, that's a department of justice mm. issue and we do, we mm. do it on a regular basis mm. as well. But just to be very clear, the, we haven't changed the process of counting. In, in, the, in this process, we, we discovered last February that in some local authorities, because they were using that so-called Section 10 funding stream, they, they counted the part, families who were in houses and apartments as homeless. And Michael, I think anybody would say to you, if someone's in a house or an apartment, they're not homeless. Do they have to get them a home? They're in a house. Do they have to get them a home? There are no danger. Do they have to get them a home? They're waiting. Like many Do they others. have to get them a home, Minister? Sorry? Michael, they are like many others. They're waiting for a more permanent home. So but they're not homeless. So they don't have a home. They're not homeless. So they don't have a home. But sure, anybody on the waiting list who's at home living with their parents on a waiting list waiting for a house, they also don't have a home either. Uh, and that's a different category. Well, they live with their parents' no, home. Yeah, but this is a question of people mm. who are homeless. Yeah. Okay, if you're in a house, sorry, Michael. Now mm. I'm going to be very well, clear. It's the people who if you used are to be in an apartment yeah. or in a house. Mm. I don't think anybody would count you as homeless. Mm. Okay, you're waiting there for a more okay. permanent house, but you're not homeless. Right, well, there's an offer of €500 five times over, €2,500 to estate agents to rent out properties to homeless people if they're made available exclusively to homeless people. This has been reported on today. Would those people who you say are not homeless uh, come under that particular umbrella? No. Because they're not homeless. They're, uh, they're waiting for uh, to be uh, allocated okay. a house from the local authority, which in most cases in that situation would be a, a build house or a, or a long-term lease house or a void house. Mm. And there'll be 10,000 of those next year. So the people in this situation, uh, that the reclassification, are in an apartment or a house that the local authority has already leased mm. or rented. 
our own ones, okay? Mm. And they're going to move them on to a more permanent house. They're not going to be told next week, your tenancy is over, you have to leave, okay? Now, in relation to the to the fees, we engage with a lot of uh, the, the, the housing professionals to find us properties. Like mm. last year, this year alone, sorry, under the HAP scheme, over 17,000 families will be helped rent a, a, a private house. Mm. And we, we source them through many ways. And yes, there is a fee there, and there has been for a couple of years. And you're driving up rents, aren't you? <laughs> where you might, we're finding people's homes. Mm, like you're driving up brands, aren't you? We're finding people's for, homes. For people who are going out to work yeah, this morning, you're driving again, up brands because there's fewer properties available again, to the, them. The rents are up because, you're right, there's fewer mm, properties. So yeah. what, the secret to that is to build more houses. And mm. again, this year, uh, independently of government, mm. counted separately to us, which you prefer, and every prefers, and we all would, for, for, it clarifies, this year you'll see 20,000 new houses in this country built. Next year you'll see 25,000 houses. Mm. Now, if you roll back two and a half years, you had less than 7,000 houses. Mm. That's the only way we can fix this. There is no other way by bringing in new houses. Mm. And yes, in the short term, that means that for social housing, then we have to rent and we have to do other things as well to get people homes. Mm. Because our job is to make sure our family is not in a hotel because mm. no one wants that. But you're paying 2,500 two euro to letting agents. The, when, when letting agents are, are, are trying to, to rent out properties, properties that no. they would rent out anyway. No, we're asking them. No, we're, we're asking. We, we've engaged many stakeholders and partners to help us find properties. Mm. Very often that's empty. If, some, if somebody has an apartment to rent, mm. do you think they'll have any problem letting it? It depends on where it is. In some cases, not. Mm. Uh, in other cases, it mightn't be. In Dublin, Louther, Meath. It, it very often they're snapped up. Absolutely. Yeah, snapped yes. up. Yeah, so why I'm, would you pay somebody €2,500 to offer okay. it? To one cohort. Right. So can we be clear, Michael? We have to try to find for people who are homeless. You've just argued with me over who's homeless. Mm. Our job is to find them a house. Well, there's many so strands to your responsibility, Minister. Yes, correct. I'm glad you said it. Mm. So one part of it is to find people a home. Yeah. Okay. And it's 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 and clear. not to give them an advantage over okay, other people. Can I, can I answer any of your yeah, questions? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, then yeah. Just give me a yeah, second, yeah, please. Yeah. Okay. okay. It is fair to say that in many cases, uh, somebody coming from a homeless situation is at a disadvantage to find a house. Okay, we work with them through our Pathfinder service to help them find a house, and that very often means engaging in, in, in it with landlords, engaging with the professionals who rent out, rent out houses in a different way to try to find them accommodation, and that has worked quite well in many cases. And in some cases, we pay we pay a fee to do that, and we've done that for years, and we will continue to do it because those people are very often at a disadvantage. It is right to say. Everybody is out there looking for a house, is competing with each other. And that's why our focus, uh, through all my work and Owen Murphy's work for the last couple of years in our department, mm. with local authorities, You're is doing to this build for years, new are you? houses. I'm in this job for two years, yes. The, the, this Rebuilding Ireland is two years old. No, this, no, 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 the, the, this mm. offer of 500 to letting agents I think we've been doing per property or up to five properties is something that has again, been happening for years, again, is Michael, it? Please don't get obsessed on one thing. We do many things, okay? And from far as I know, for the last, certainly for the last year and a half, because it's something I would have asked that we would do, that we would engage with the people out there who help source houses, it came, help us find houses. It came as an awful shock uh, to Darrow O'Brien. I don't know what the big... I'm not really sure mm. what your issues here. Are you a fan mm. for Darrell Ryan or something? Because he's made it a big shock for him. Mm. But it's we. It's part of our job. My mm. job is to get people houses. Well, also the, the Institute of Professional well. Auctioneers and Valuers are saying that there's a potential conflict of interest here. I, I, I haven't heard the comments, but I engage them quite a lot, so I'll actually probably meeting some of them later on today. Mm. But I, I, to be honest with you, I think you're... That's fine if you want to focus on this story. That's grand. But well, why not we, for a minute or yeah, two? Why, why not? Because so, yeah. I think it's... I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say I we think do it. it's yeah. considered... 
to, to be a no, significant story today yeah, that you're giving two and a half thousand euro to Letic agents to advantage one cohort of renting society over another. I, I, I'm after telling you, Michael, we have many strands in our housing area, which is to look after people in, in all the different sectors and to make sure we bring forward new houses and new properties, as well as build a sustainable, sustainable construction sector. A major part of our work and the focus that we're asked by most people as taxpayers is to find a home for someone who is homeless. And we start the program with that and that's mm. our priority work. And yes, in some cases, we engage uh, with letting agents to help us source properties. And we do that and have done it for ages and we'll continue to do it. And I'm surprised that Darrell Bryan is so surprised if he's the housing spokesperson for Fianna Fáil because he will be very familiar or should be familiar with the work we do because priority number one is if a family has not got a house is to help them find a house. Now, in some cases, we've built family hubs which are uh, a more of a... a a better provision of the, than emergency accommodation with a family hub designed for families in the short term to come, to live mm-hmm. in while we, while we try to find them a house. And so of the of this oh, close to 10,000 people who are without a house today, about 500 families are in family hubs. And we're going to build uh, a few more family hubs as well to give people that that accommodate, it's a better style accommodation while you're waiting for a more permanent house. What about the vacant properties and uh, the compulsory mm. purchase orders on these properties? Mm. Uh, county Louth. Uh, They'll be very successful, yeah. Pretty much the only county that is doing this. Yeah, there's two, there's two things. There's many, we, at this stage now, we, because vacancy is a big issue, okay, and the census figure showed a figure of 180,000, the, 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 the directory administered by Jan Post and the ordinance, ordinance survey was over 94,000 mm. but either way there are a lot of houses there that are, that are vacant and we would estimate I mean since the census was done probably up to up to probably 50,000 of those houses have been, have been sold or moved on still a lot of vacant houses so we now have a vacant vacancy office in every local authority and it's funded through our department and the staff allocated now to try to tackle vacancy one of the and there's numerous schemes there the repair and lease back the purchase and renew long term lease and there's loads of schemes that are attractive to encourage people who own a house mm. to make it available but where's the and, joint and up thinking though Minister you know when you've got one county council that is doing something mm. successfully over a long period yeah. of time and nobody else is following a successful example okay. it begs questions right. surely so, of decision makers yes. like yourself 140 of all the compulsory orders in County Loud. Next on the list, Dublin City, 25. Yeah. Again, okay. None in me. Right. The CPO is not, uh, doesn't have to be used by every local authority, mm. some local authorities, rather to engage and try to come to an arrangement. We've had a lot of our housing summits, and we've asked Joan McGuinness from Loud on a couple of occasions, he has presented to all our colleagues because we do share all the information, we do share best practice, and we have told local authorities that we will we'll work with them to, to increase the number of CPOs if they, if they want to go down that road. Some local authorities don't need it, they engage mm. with the private sector. What a CPO is about, these are houses that people own privately. And then we, the local authorities engage to try to bring them back into the system. Mm. Loud have decided the CPO works well for them and they've used it very effectively and I commend them on it. And I've asked local authorities to follow suit as well. All the local authorities say that they are getting on better engaging and negotiating with private ownership and avoiding CPOs. And that's fine too. Mm. Because either way, we want these vacant properties brought back into use. And there is a lot of vacant properties that are coming back into use now, and rightly so, for a combination of social housing or private housing. We want to do more of that. And that's why there is a vacancy house, uh, vacancy office now in every local authority because this is a major mm. target area. 
it's complicated tackling vacancy. There's loads of reasons why a house is vacant, uh, but we're trying to e- work our way through that individually with land with, with owners of these properties mm. and to use the uh, schemes that are funded by the taxpayer to make them attractive to bring them back into use. Because Minister, just, everyone gains. Just everything. to conclude, if I, mm. I could, I, I wonder: is the government uh, capable, or does the government feel Fianna Fáil is capable of working with uh, the government on this issue? Given what you said about Darrow O'Brien a few moments ago, not uh, aware of a, a government scheme that mm. he should have been uh, aware of, and Fianna Fáil going into the confidence and supply talk saying that housing is a major issue when they said it was a major issue going into the budget negotiations and delivered it as a, a, a housing budget. Look, again, Michael, uh, we're the ones that have to make the daily decisions around housing and it's, it's a major focus of my work, Minister Home Office, working on a daily basis, visiting local authorities, visiting sites, uh, trying to work through the pipeline of projects, make sure that there's enough pro- projects in the pipeline to deliver 10,000 houses next year, 10,000 the year after, and move on in that as well. So it's a daily job for us, okay? And part of what's happening this week and next week is there's a negotiation between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael to see can we extend the Confidence and Supply Agreement. Mm. Housing is a major focus of that. Without a doubt, uh, Fianna Fáil want to bring a focus of that too. In there, I suppose, is an opportunity to talk through all the schemes uh, and, and let them know what we are doing. Uh, but I, I have, have said many occasions, when I'm in dull debates, I look around colleagues and I, and I question... Um, do they know everything we're doing? Cause very, and, I, and I've said, I repeatedly want an, an honest debate mm. around housing. And I'll tell you why. Because even the, the large march before Christmas, a lot of people called for a new social housing bill programme to build 10,000 houses a year and so on. And that's exactly what we're doing as a government. So I hear all these different groups out there who are calling for us to do something that we have started. But we started two years ago because we knew you couldn't go from zero to 10,000 overnight. We had to start two, two years ago to get to where we are today. And we'll go forward the next year and the year after as well. And that's why I'm confident that I can say to you that I know we will be able to get ahead of this housing situation and we'll be able to end this crisis because okay. our plan is two years old. And I would ask very uh, others to, to mm. look at that plan. We'll add to it, we'll change things if need be as well. But it, it is working. It's and, and it's the different the danger where it is when there's still thousands of people who haven't got a house today. It's hard to convince mm. anybody it's working. Mm. I can see what's behind it. I can see what's coming, and I know if we stick to it that it it, it, it will solve this because already over seven thousand people who were homeless over the last eighteen months are in a house today. Mm. So and the, have been so replaced, the, and, and been by, replaced by more yeah. than but, that. But we're now doing more as well. but we're but now thankfully compared we're now a lot more popular. So these these current. But, uh, people who are in a homeless situation up to 10,000 they'll be re- they'll be in a house very quickly because we've a lot more properties coming on well, now. for their sake let's hope that oh, that is the yeah, and we need, and we okay, need to try to prevent more coming in th- coming into their situation okay. that's what we're trying to do as well Thank you for coming mm-hmm. in to us uh, this morning uh, that is a Minister of State with responsibility for housing and local TD Damien English Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's talk about uh, stabbing in uh, Drogheda last night. Rich Han, a local Fine Gael councillor and former guarded detective, is on uh, the line. Uh, we've uh, reports uh, today of a 32-year-old stabbed in the neck on uh, the Windmill Road last night. Uh, what else have you been hearing, Richie? Well, basically, you know, I mean, <clears throat> usually when you hear these... Uh, incidents that occur, Mike, involving firearms or indeed uh, knives, uh, it's usually gang-related. I'm assured by members of the force that uh, this is not gang-related and it's simply a domestic um, incident that occurred. However, uh, they did suggest that some of the um, people involved were known to Gardaí, all right, but it wasn't uh, drugs or gang-related. Or Halloween revelry-related, if you can put it that way. Well, generally, you know, I mean, around Halloween, unfortunately, um, there is a lot of alcohol consumed, um, probably drugs taken as well. And, 
you know, this results in a lot of tragedies for certain families and for families around the around the country. And um, I suppose last night was no different. Um, and it's unfortunate that things like these that this this happen at you know at a time when it's supposed to be. Uh, you know, a joy, joyous occasion for for families and for for children especially. Um, I know that uh, you know uh, knife crime is becoming you know far too prevalent, um, and you have a situation now where many you know people are carrying knives, uh, you know, going about their daily business, which is uh, very very worrying. Um, it always reminds me of a a particular judge in North County Dublin. That I used to deal with, he was a, a judge, Sean DeLapp. Uh, he's deceased now, but um, he had one uh, rule of Tom when he was uh, dealing with people who were found in possession of knives for no lawful reason, and that was that he would sentence them to twelve months in prison because he found inevitably that any cases that came before him in the district court um, that involving knives usually resulted in very serious injury or indeed loss of life. And his his idea was that, uh, you know, there are no 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 nobody is entitled to carry a knife in a public place, unless it's a butcher coming from his work or a fisherman indeed coming from his work. Uh, there would be the only two exceptions. So he pointed to the fact that uh, he, in his opinion, and his on his his term on the bench, uh, he dealt with many cases sending people forward for trial um, in relation to uh, murders. Uh, and that was basically by carrying knives. And whether it was the victim who was actually carrying the knife, mm. um, you know, many many cases mm. came before him where people carried knives and they were actually stabbed with their own Somebody knife. Somebody took the knife off them and stabbed <clears> them <throat> with it, yeah. But I thought it was a very good rule of thumb. Yeah. You know, there is nobody really should carry a knife for any lawful possession other than a butcher or a or a perhaps a fisherman. Well, we hope in, the, in this particular incident uh, that the victim, the 32-year-old man, uh, will make a, a full recovery. He'll be lucky to do so because obviously stabbing somebody in the neck runs at the risk of hitting a, a main artery. Uh, what are you hearing from your sources locally? Uh, I take it there were witnesses to this and Gardy will hope to make an arrest. Well, as I said, you know, they're definitely, you know, the, the old line, they're following a definite line, line of inquiry, which is which is good and, they, you know, they're not looking beyond the uh, you know, two two people um, uh, for this particular incident, and uh, I'm I'm led to believe that the the situation isn't life threatening for the for the victim. Um, so, uh, as I said, it, it'll be good if they bring this to, to a conclusion pretty quickly. They're not looking for witnesses, really, and um, you know they should they should have this before the courts. You know, um, pretty quickly. Okay, Richie, thanks for joining us. Richie Culhan is a former guarded detective and sitting councillor for Fine Gael. Now, if you're found driving at 75 kilometres in a 50k zone, uh, you might be a bit peeved at the idea of uh, paying a fine of 80 euro or, for that matter, the inconvenience of three penalty points. Uh, but it would be far worse, wouldn't it, if you were fined 116,000 euro and given the three points? That was uh, the case in 2000. And two, when uh, Nokia director was found to be driving at that speed on a motorbike in Finland, and uh, something that was suggested to authorities here that speeding fines would be based on your income. Not the case, however. The Daily Mail is reporting today that the minister is contemplating uh, different fine 
depending on the speed that you're travelling at. Conor Falkland, Director of Consumer Affairs with AA Ireland, is on the line. Good morning to you, Conor, and thanks Hello, uh, for joining us. Uh, I heard you uh, in uh, the bulletins uh, saying this is not a, a bad idea. Well, it's not a bad idea in principle, and it has been done in other jurisdictions. Um, the one that's most eye-catching is uh, the example of Finland, where they actually will calculate your speeding fine based on your income. So there's been some eye-wateringly huge fines issued out to rich people in Finland. But that's not at all what Shane Ross is talking about here. Our basic speeding offence is an €80 fine and three penalty points. And that's the same if you're a micro-violation just above a limit or if you're a flagrant violation, which is a much, much more dangerous thing. So I, I guess this recognises that um, you know, mm. there, there are degrees of speeding and the punishment should reflect. It looks like they're talking about just increasing the fine. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with that as a principle, but uh, it's not really at the source of our road safety challenge at the moment. And it's an old Irish habit. Uh, this minister and previous ministers, and it's been an Irish government tradition for years, when they want to do something, they change the law. They dream up a tougher law and they drive it through. And okay, but if you're not enforcing it, it doesn't really address the issue. And I think that's partly our frustration. Mm -hmm. No objection to this as an idea, but we're not short of ideas and we're not short of laws. We are short of Gardaí, and that's a more meaningful measure. And the principle, I suppose, involved in the two examples is the severity of... The sanction, uh, if you're fined 80 euro, it is very severe if you're on low income, but means nothing to you if uh, you're a, a director of a big multi-corporation, such as uh, that case uh, from 2002. Very different if you're fined 116,000 euro than 80 euro. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that's the great uh, democratic merit of penalty points. Because, you know, rich man, poor man, beggar man, thief, we all have 12 penalty points available to us. Um, and, and that's fair, and I think everybody's got their head around that system. The 80 euro fine that comes along with your penalty points, but I know 80 euro is no joke to a lot of people, but broadly speaking, that's not the deterrent. It's not really the fine that stings. It's the penalty points that sting. Uh, and I, I think what the minister's talking about here is making, um, well, judging only by the Daily Mail, we, we, we don't have, uh, you know, direct access to what is planned here, but the kite being floated is that the, the fine will increase. And as I say, no objection to that. It's got a degree of logic to it. It's reasonably fair. Um, but in terms of, of, of moving road safety forward, it's not particularly important. Mm. Uh, it's neither controversial nor important, I would suggest. And, and while, while I have no problem with it, I would much rather be reading about um, boosting the capacity of the Garda traffic or getting more resources out and about. Those are innovations that really do. Uh, and people will say to you, it's not fair that I face the same sanction for being slightly over the limit. Uh, I was doing 48 one minute, then 52 in a 50k zone. And that's when they caught me on the camera. Uh, and it, it seemed a little bit sneaky to me. Whereas there was a, a fellow who was doing 70 in the same area and he got the 80 euro fine and the three penalty points the same as me. Yeah, that's right. And, um, and you know, there are degrees. Uh, by the way, when you, set, when you hear somebody tell you that I was doing 52 in a 50 zone, people have said that to me. I've never found a, a, a validated case. Usually it's an unambiguous violation before a prosecution is triggered. Micro violations are, are you know, successfully prosecuted are rare. Um, but, you know, be that as it may, I think we would all recognize in common sense that if I'm doing, say, uh, 70 in a 60 zone, 
uh, on a sort of a bright, clear day with no particular danger. That's a speeding offence and, you know, deserve to be punished. Uh, but it's not quite the same thing as roaring through a rural village at 90 kph, uh, you know, much more dangerous uh, activity, and yet the punishment is the same. So, look, you, you, you could um, parse these as, uh, with as much detail as you wish, and you can debate every single one as to whether it's fair or whether it's not fair. But in the broadest sense, everybody has 12 penalty points if you break the speed limit, you lose three of them, mm. and you know that. Uh, and and you know, once we're, we're we we are all clear on that, what becomes important in terms of preventing the behaviour is not how much money you're fined, but whether you're actually likely to be caught. Doesn't matter what the fine mm. size is. Very few people will speed past flashing blue lights. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, the, the greater road safety dividend comes in investing in Gardaí rather than ever-tightening laws that are already pretty tight. Police it. All right. Thank you indeed, as always. Conor Falkland, Director of Consumer Affairs with AA Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, another stabbing now. Uh, this is a stabbing that uh, occurred on uh, the train from Dublin uh, to Drogheda, somewhere between Clester and Harmonstown on uh, the north side of uh, the city at about 20 to 10. Uh, it was on the 20 to 10 service. Uh, it happened uh, just after 10 o'clock uh, and has prompted calls from uh, the National Bus and Rail Union uh, to introduce a Garda Public Transport Unit uh, and it follows on foot of many other antisocial behaviour incidents on the train system. We're joined by Sinn Féin's spokesperson on transport now, Imelda Munster. Good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, What are you hearing uh, about the trains? Are they safe to travel on? Well, there seems to be an alarming rise in the figures. Um, There was over a thousand different disturbances um, recorded since last year, you know, um, and I know the union are seriously worried about attacks on their staff. Well, they're talking about no-go areas, really, aren't they? That's what they're, they're mm. flagging up, yeah. They're saying that nearly not a week goes by where there isn't an incident. But um, many of the incidents, um, you know, are attacks on staff or fighting um, general aggressive behaviour or criminal damage, like graffiti or that, on public transport. And I suppose... Um, it, train or a bus when you think about it it's the one place that you, you actually think you would be safe mm. travelling home particularly late at night but it must be desperately frightening for um, staff and passengers because you're in a confined space. But are there and not cameras in those carriages? Well some of the some of the um, the, the different the different uh, transport um, providers like Lewis is, is looked after by they have a private security firm and Dublin Bus use extensive CCTV and Erin Roderan who also operate the DART they've um, contracted a security company as well I think Erin Roderan has said they've 35% more security patrols and they work with the Gardaí you know where there are reoccurring issues hot spots mm. for example that are likely but if, if you're in that position and you're stuck in a confined space that you can't get off until the next stop you know it's 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 desperate frightening Um but the the NBRU were looking for um, a dedicated transport police unit. Um, now, it's clear that there's additional resources needed and be open to exploring all the options. There's transport police that operate in cities with similar population mm. to Dublin, you know, Glasgow, and you have the British transport police that provide transport security across Britain. There's another option where... Um, government could fund public transport bodies to provide adequate security or increased security and work with Gardaí in relation, closely with Gardaí in relation to um, 
hot spots, etc. Um, but without cameras, you're still in that same confined uh, space out of sight, uh, regardless of whether there's police in the next carriage or, or, or not. I mean, as things stand, I'm sure you can radio ahead and say there's trouble on the train and uh, the guards will come if you know that there's trouble on the train. Well, that's it, yeah. And it's only, um, to the best of my knowledge, it's just Dublin bus that has the extensive CCTV in place. You know, so that if given the, the alarming rise in incidents, they're going to have to seriously look at um, providing better security, you know, and more yeah. effective security when it comes to that. Um, you look at the other aspect of it and you talk about resources, you know, um, in relation to even the traffic core numbers. They've been reduced by 30% since 2011. You know, um, I think it was in 2011 with 940 in the traffic core, and that's last year was 640-something. Now, there was 87 new guards added to the roads policing unit this year, but it all comes down to, to resourcing and whether or not the government are prepared to provide the resources. Conor Falkland of the AA was just talking about the traffic core for that matter uh, in relation to this idea that is being flagged in the Daily Mail uh, about increasing the fine for speeding depending on what speed you're driving at. He's saying, look, you have good laws in place, enforce them. Is that your position? Um, well, it would depend really. It, you know, there's different incidents whereby you have somebody blatantly, blatantly at showing total disregard where you're speeding in excess. You mm. know that there's a, And would you find them €116,000? This was the case in 2002 in Finland when a, a director of Nokia was driving his motorbike uh, through a 50k zone at 75. I remember reading something about that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and, and the reason he was fined so much is because he earned so much. In other words, the €80 Euro fine wouldn't mean anything to him or deter him from doing it again. That's the principle of, of that approach, uh, mm. that the fine would be based on your income. Is that the type of approach you'd support? Well, we haven't. I haven't seen anything of Minister Ross's proposals. The devil's in the detail, as they say. Mm. Well, um, it's in the Daily Mail, apparently. <laughs> oh, is it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I did. We, he hasn't furnished anybody with them yet. But if if it's a thing that it's somebody who's blatantly, I mean, you often hear of somebody, you know, doing two or three or four kilometres over, and you accept that, you know, if you're caught, okay, you think, oh, flip sake, but you you pay your fine. But if it's somebody, there's a world of difference, and maybe that's what he's trying to do if you're blatantly showing total disregard. But there's also the dangerous driving legislation is there for that mm. too, you know. So, And certainly, I sincerely hope he's not putting up the flat fee for someone that's just doing um, a couple of kilometres over the no, speed I, I mean, I, I, I think the idea is... The speedometer uh, at that stage, I think know? the idea is in line with what you're saying. Mm. Uh, if you're driving uh, just over the limit, uh, you'll pay so much. If you're yeah. driving uh, above that speed, you'll pay more and more again uh, the faster you're going. Uh, but I, I think the point Conor Falkland was making is that the same rule applies to everybody with penalty points, 12 points, and you're off the road. If you're continuously breaking the traffic laws, you'll be off the the road if the law is being enforced. Yes, yeah. Well, the, you see, it, the devil would be in the detail, as I say, with what the minister comes out with. You know, if you're found to be blatantly, you know, deliberately breaching, reckless almost, well, then the fine should be substantial and punishment should mm. be that, you know, reoccurring, you're taken off the road. But we don't know exactly what he's proposing until he furnishes 
furnishes us with okay. the detail, but certainly... So you'd support that, uh, as we understand it, and you'd support the idea of a dedicated guard force on public transport? Well, I'd be, well firstly, I'd, I won't support anything till I see what the Minister is proposing. You know, it's, it's very easy for the Minister just to inflict, you know, fines. It, it, it's not actually getting to the root of it, and it comes back to what I said about resources. Mm. He can bring in all the laws, and I've said this time and time again, he can bring all the laws in the world in that he wants. Okay, but do you want, the trains, to, up. Do you want the trains to be pleased? Well, the, certainly be looking at exploring all the options, right? You could, as I said, uh, provide, and I wouldn't be against that, a dedicated transport police that's given the, the, the alarming rise in incidents that is similar to other countries. But the other option that could be explored too is to fund um, public transport bodies to provide adequate security, including, you know, enhanced mm-hmm. CCTV footage, etc. Okay. And given the rise as well, um, you need to kind of try and nip this in the bud too. And realistically, I mean, I raised just there last week, I think it was the week before, about Loud. In Loud, we have two patrol cars in Drogheda, the Gardaí, and we've one community policing van to share between Drogheda and Dundalk, the two largest towns in the state. And I raised it on two occasions with the Minister Flanagan. And one of his responses was so flippant, it was insulting to both the Gardaí and the public. He said, oh, the, that could be raised at the JPC, you know, the, the local joint policing committee. But at that committee, the Gardaí were saying they're starved of resources. You know, so okay. it, it, the government needs to kind of get serious about this, as I said. Oh, well, I, I, all the I'm laws, sure, but if I, you don't back it up with resources, okay. it means nothing. Uh, OK, uh, I'm sure the government would say it is serious. So we are out of time, though, and I have to leave it there. And thank you for your time and for joining us uh, this morning. Sinn Féin's spokesperson on transport, Melda Munster, is a TD in Louth. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Maggie McGuire joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Maggie. Good morning, Michael. I hope you've had a, a lot of calls today. Yeah, it's been very busy this morning, but myself and Ross are flat out in the phones there, so um, I'll get straight to it. And we've had a lot of reaction to your opening piece with uh, Damien English. A lot of people not happy um, for... No. One reason or another. Um, mm. I'll start off with. Well, that's some, a pity. Yeah, well, mm. this is it. I'll start off with Sheila. She's not happy with you. Oh, that yeah, really? Is <laughs> we a pity. start yeah, off yeah, with yeah. that one. Um, she says she's not happy um, following your interview with Damien this morning because she felt that um, you talked over him all the time and didn't give him a chance to answer. And she felt that you were a little bit rude. Um, she is. Uh, she basically asked the question: How is Minister English supposed to fix the housing crisis when the demand for housing is never ending? For every one thousand people rehoused, there's another thousand that appear on the list, and it's a perpetual merry-go-round. Okay, but what does that mean? Does that mean it's uh, impossible? Because the Minister doesn't think it's impossible. The Minister says he is fixing it. The government says it is fixing it, Mm -hmm. uh, that it is fixable. So I guess that's the issue that we were trying to tease out. How is it fixable and what is happening? Well, this is it. I mean, the feeling I got from Sheila was that she felt that, you know, we need to give the government, the minister, or whatever way you want mm, to put it, mm. the time to kind of work on it a bit more that we're expecting, you know, solutions straight off and that, you know, it's it's taken a while to get into the problem. It's going mm. to take a while to get out of the crisis. Well, yeah, I think a lot of people would agree with a lot <laughs> yeah. of that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the question is, uh, could more be done quicker? Uh, and indeed, uh, how much has been achieved so far? How many people are actually homeless? That's uh, one of uh, the issues uh, that's in contention. And indeed, uh, there was uh, that question this morning about the €500 that is being paid to letting agents to let out uh, property salon as it's only people who are deemed to be homeless who can apply for that property. 
And staying on the housing issue, um, Fran was in contact um, to ask if Minister English actually knows what a home is because it's most certainly not a hotel room. He says that this government, all they seem interested in is... um, catering for the worries of farmers and keeping them happy. Okay, well I don't think uh, for a second uh, that Damien English would argue that a hotel room is a home. No, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Um, Eric and Dundalk called in with an interesting proposal to tackle the housing crisis. Um, He thinks that government should encourage people to have no more than two children to help stabilise the population. He says it's the only long-term solution to the housing problem that he can see because prime land around towns and villages is reducing and we need to keep our populations Mm. down. Boys or girls? Didn't specify that. Maybe one of he yeah, doesn't have a yeah, preference. Yeah, he didn't yeah. say that. Do, in the, he didn't say that. And what, no. what happens if a third is on the way? I don't know. We can go into mm-hmm. that, to be okay. perfectly honest yep. with you. But, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, well, they've had rules like that in China, don't they? They have mm. done it. Didn't work out so well there. Mm. But anyway, um, staying with the housing, Mary from Mead rang. Um, she said that in the 1980s, local authorities used to sell individual sites to people to build their own homes. And she's wondering is this something that government might reconsider um, starting up again or would they have a look at it? Okay. And um, Mick was saying that there's plenty of less expensive land down the west of Ireland available for people to build on or for government to use for social housing instead of using up all the productive land in Dublin and the surrounding areas. All right, uh, let's uh, talk uh, about uh, that other crisis uh, that has really concerned uh, so many people uh, across uh, the country and uh, the 42 schools uh, that uh, were at risk of uh, structural deficits and Alan Tobin who's a Fine Gael councillor and also a member of uh, the board of management at Ashburn Education together joins us now. Good morning to you Alan and thanks for joining us. Uh, we're getting closer to finding out where we're going with all of this on a, a national basis. What about the schools locally? Good morning again, Michael. Um, yeah, so we got the news there yesterday um, that there would be some work to the exteriors of uh, the three schools. And these, as I said to you before, are within a, a one campus. Mm. It was kind of state of the art at the time. Two secondary school, or two, two primary schools, sorry, feeding into it. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Secondary school and basically a child goes in for, for baby infants and goes all the way up to leaving certain one campus. Absolutely fabulous. So the um, inspections were done over the weekend. They were in there on Saturday. And I suppose as a precautionary measure, um, they are going to fence off, or they're in the process of fencing off, mm. the three schools at the moment with the hope of opening them up on Monday. So the interior has got the all clear. The interior of the of all of the buildings is absolutely fine. And on the exterior, as a precautionary measure, and I was talking to the Minister earlier this morning uh, about this, as a precautionary measure, because it's difficult, I suppose, to, to, to ascertain whether the wall ties are sufficient on it or not, what they're going to do is they're going to take, I suppose, the wise approach and check it all out. So the the fencing will go up and the decking. I know some people were, were confused a little bit about what fencing and decking meant, but basically what they're going to do is fence it off so that workers can access the exterior of the building, but that um, the children and the staff uh, going into the school won't be affected by it at all. So the, the doorways and the windows and things like that will be clear. Uh, so that obviously there'll be no... Um, locking of fire doors or anything like that so that um, the, 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 the kids will be separated, I suppose, from the work people who will be going in and taking uh, the exterior uh, wall cladding off, having a look at what way it's tied in and then assessing it to see if it is a case that it has to be replaced, new wall ties or something, uh, some different engineering solution, I suppose, um, put in place. So Fisk, I believe, are the company that are going to fence off the school um, and uh, there, there will be disruption, obviously, uh, it, it, to the exterior of the building but class goes on uh, as usual uh, from Monday. And they'll actually take all of the cladding off the exterior wall in other words, is it? Well, uh, they, they did preliminary investigations of that and I suppose the difficulty is that you're, you're, you're trying to get cameras in or cameras down to see what way the, the wall ties are on it. Um, so as a precautionary measure they have to see they have to look at more I suppose to see mm if it's sufficient or not. Because the fear, if I understand it correctly, is that there may be wall ties, but not as many as there should be. Uh, And despite discovering on the initial investigation that there are are wall ties, uh, the walls may still uh, be unsafe. They may still be unsafe. So, as I say, this is totally a precautionary measure, Mm. I suppose. Mm. Parents want transparency here. They want to have confidence in their schools. So if it's a case that you can't be sure, let's do what we need to do to be sure that it, that we can have a look at it, mm. that we can be confident that it's safe. And all of these schools, in our case, these are built since November 2016. They survived the heavy snow. Mm. They survived, mm. you know, the, the wind the events that we had yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. I, I'm really, really hoping that everything will be okay. And look, mm. if they need more wall ties, they need more wall ties, mm. they will be rectified. Now, we didn't get a, a, a time scale as to how long the disruption would be so or it, anything like that. Is it that they'll be taking sections of the exterior wall off so that they can get sight of what's behind them? I'm not entirely sure. Right, I okay. would imagine it's mm. something like that. We weren't yeah. given that, that, that level of detail. Um, but but I, I, it's to get into the walls, it's to get to see how many of these are, are on and what way they're, they're, what way they're, they're, they're tied to the walls. Okay, but for some period of time, you'll be returning to... Uh, what's like a, a building site? Uh, how long uh, might that take? 
again, they didn't give a time scale mm. on it. So, uh, you know, it I, depends I think on the fairness, problem, I suppose. Yeah. It depends on the problem, but in fairness yeah. to the department, I mean, they, they've been very, very proactive yep. with this from the start. Mm-hmm. I, I cannot fault them at all. They, they got in there, they got in there, you know, as quickly as they could assess the situation and now they're going to rectify the situation mm. as soon as possible. Okay. But a, 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 as, a, as a precaution, the school is safe because all of the areas where this cladding is is going to be cordoned off so there's no risk of, mm. of cladding coming off walls and hitting kids. Yeah. Uh, as you say, the headline story is that the school is safe and should be open come next Monday. Yes, and any mm. other uh, reports or information uh, will be posted on school websites. So just for parents there that are concerned, keep an eye on that. And I, 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 There is an app that some of the uh, the people have their uh, a lab, I think it's called, where the schools keep in touch with parents. Uh, keep an eye on that as well, and any further updates will be posted uh, on them. But as from as and from Monday, classes is back to normal, and uh, mm. the, the school will look a little different. I suppose mm. you, you know you need to tell yeah. the kids that, uh, but it, it, it's for good reason. And uh, as I say, hopefully there, this won't be for too long. Very good. Thanks for the update and uh, please keep in touch uh, if uh, there is more to report on and thanks for joining us for that matter. Alan Tobin is a member of the Board of Management at the Educate Together campus in Ashburn and a sitting Fine Gael councillor. Now back to more of your thoughts and some of the comments that you have for us there, Maggie. Staying with housing, Seamus contacted us to say that he feels uh, Fine Gael are sticking to their old failing policies of um, throwing money at the private sector instead of building public housing. And he's saying that another thing that's not being considered is the long-term effects of homelessness, um, you know, that for people caught up uh, or who become homeless at any point, even for a short period of time, they can lose a sense of self and a, self, mm. a sense of community. And he honestly believes that we're going to be feeling the effects of this current crisis for years to come in the mm. country. Well, he may be right. Uh, oh. Indeed, uh, there's the long-term societal impact of uh, people being in this situation, in particular the 4,000 children or thereabouts. Yeah, who no, are, it doesn't bear thinking about yeah. really, does mm-hmm. it? You know, and he is right. We yeah. will be feeling mm-hmm. the effects of it for a long time. I think everybody has been impacted either by reading about it or seeing it first stand or knowing mm-hmm. someone who's been affected so yeah everybody's okay. been touched by it you know um, in relation to your interview with Conor Faulkner on the whole issue of speeding fines Kevin is saying that it's obvious that people doing much higher and more dangerous speeds should be punished more than people who are only doing a, a kilometre or two over the limit he says isn't that just common sense and um, in relation to and more locally here in relation to the stabbing in Drogheda Mary contacted us this morning she was really upset actually on the phone she was saying she was um, horrified to hear about another assault um, happening in the town this you know this morning or overnight mm-hmm. she was saying last week it was shootings and fires and this week's it's a stabbing um, it seems to her that violence in Drogheda is, is, is increasing at a scary rate and she's wondering what happened to the safe little town as she put yeah. it that she grew up in um, she says it's getting to a point where she's almost afraid to leave her home once it gets past a certain time in the evening and mm-hmm. she said that's a horrible feeling yeah. to feel like the town that you grew mm-hmm. up in is just a completely alien atmosphere to you yeah. after so many years you know? Okay and as uh, we've been discussing uh, odd for uh, a town with such a small population relatively speaking to where you'd expect trouble Uh, we'll leave it there for the moment we might come back to some more of those comments a little bit later in the programme time allowing thanks for that Maggie for the moment and thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us if you'd like to add to what's been said our telephone number is always 1850 715 958 Michael Reed on LMFM Sergeant Maurice McCabe retired from on Garda at midnight last night saying that he he would have uh, kept working for the Garda but believed that he couldn't go back after everything that happened telling the Irish Examiner today that the decision was sad in many ways uh, but it was the only decision available to him. Maurice McCabe uh, had many 
a complaint about Garda behaviour and malpractice and indeed uh, many of uh, those complaints came to a head in uh, the public limelight almost five years ago. Quite clearly here we have two people out of a force of over 13,000 who are making extraordinary uh, serious allegations and there isn't a whisper anywhere else from any other member of the Garda Shikana uh, about this corruption, this malpractice and all of those things that are levelled against their fellow officers. Uh, I, 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 frankly, I think it's quite disgusting. It's, on a personal level, I think it's quite disgusting. Now, that's the former Chief of Police, Guard Commissioner Martin Callanan, speaking to the Public Accounts Committee in January of 2014. The chair of that committee at that time was Fianna Fáil TD, John McGuinness, who's on the line. Good morning to you and thanks for joining us. So when you consider everything that's happened in between, it must be a little bit strange listening back to those comments this morning. Uh, well, it is, because, as you say, that was 2014, uh, that was the position taken by senior officers within the force at that time. And I suppose it underlines really what Morris McCabe uh, was up against. Uh, we since have found out from the Charlton Tribunal that he was targeted uh, by those very same officers. Uh, and I know from my personal contact with Morris McCabe that he was treated extremely badly over a period of 12 to 14 years. Uh, and that his story, looking back on it now, is quite shocking. Yeah, and the Guard Commissioner was quite convincing back then uh, and indeed had uh, a lot of uh, support politically for what he was saying and he was making the point that Morris McCabe and John Wilson were just two people out of a, a force of more than 13,000 who had complaints and that's why he was saying, as we heard there and reminded ourselves, uh, that he, he found it to be quite disgusting. But the complaints at the time were very, very serious and what you were dealing uh, with at the time was how penalty points were being quashed uh, and how uh, the two men involved had discovered that over 200 Gardaí had terminated penalty points uh, and in most cases corruptly. Uh, And you were asking uh, Martin Callanan at that time, uh, given that these complaints were being made and made publicly, why he hadn't spoken to these people? Yeah, well, I mean, at the time, the Comptroller and Auditor General had carried out uh, a report uh, into the penalty point system uh, and found irregularities. But what Morris McCabe uh, produced in terms of evidence uh, showed that there was uh, an awful lot of irregularities all over the country and that, in fact, it went way beyond the figures quoted by the Controller and Auditor General. We also know now that it wasn't just Morris McCabe and John Wilson that in fact there were other whistleblowers in the force who were beaten down by the system and never had their voice heard. Morris McCabe had the strength of character and I suppose the strength of his family to press ahead with his allegations. And he appeared in full uniform before the Public Accounts Committee. Uh, some members were concerned uh, that he would uh, you know, criticise fellow officers and and his superiors, but he didn't. Mm. He appeared in full uniform. He was proud of that uniform. He gave a full account uh, of himself and what he had discovered, uh, and he laid the um, 
poor practice there in front of the Public Accounts Committee. And from then on, uh, he could not be uh, criticised uh, and he had to be listened to. But for many years, he wasn't listened to at all. In fact, he was treated badly by politicians and by those within divorce. Mm. And the Charlton Tribunal's uh, report uh, will stand as a very positive legacy for Morris McCabe, but will stand also as an awful indictment of the practices uh, that went on within the force at that time. Mm. Uh, and uh, part of that practice, uh, you uh, uh, testified uh, to the tribunal, but in terms of Morris McCabe, I think it's probably right to say that his name and his public service will uh, be recorded in history forevermore. Uh, he went to the Public Accounts Committee with his complaints after uh, losing confidence in the confidential recipient. Uh, uh, following on from that meeting, uh, which uh, you heard uh, he was disgusting and his actions were disgusting, uh, the person who said that uh, lost uh, their uh, role as commissioner. Two commissioners have gone, two ministers have gone, uh, Secretary-General has gone. Uh, you could argue that uh, the Taoiseach and Kenny retired early, albeit indirectly, as a result of the actions and indeed uh, the way the complaints were handled by government. Uh, there's few who could have endured what Morris McCabe did endure. Well, he didn't just endure it for the period that he was in the force trying to bring all of this, um, you know, corruption to, to light, uh, poor practice to light. Uh, he also had to endure all of this being recounted again during the course of the tribunal. Uh, and that was not easy for his family. He has five children and his wife, Lorraine. Uh, but they stood together all during that charge and inquiry. Uh, and they listened to the stories that were being, you know, told about him, uh, horrific stories. Uh, and at the same time, uh, he, he, he dealt with it all with, uh, with dignity. And when they came, for his retirement yesterday, after 34 years uh, of service, uh, he told me that he was left really with no option. That was very unfair, uh, you know, of the system, but he could not be accommodated. He couldn't see himself going back into uh, that that Garda station, uh, carrying out the work that he had done for 34 years. And uh, personally, I believe he made the right decision because the culture within the force will take some time uh, to root out and change. Uh, So Morris McCabe, uh, while retiring, he has done a huge service for the police force. And it's quite, quite, um, I suppose, stunning now to look at the politicians and others coming out in praise of Morris McCabe. Um, There wasn't many around when Morris McCabe needed them. Uh, and he had to fight himself uh, to get the the justice uh, that he has been delivered to him now by Charlton. Uh, And it was delivered by Charlton to him, uh, as you say, because of uh, what the tribunal heard. You were a key witness 
in all of that. And uh, I think you were told probably one of uh, the worst stories uh, about Morris McCabe uh, that could be told uh, about anybody, a totally untrue story that was told to you in a car park at Newlands Cross by Martin Callanan, the Garda Commissioner, who we heard uh, speaking at the Public Accounts Committee almost five years ago there describing the actions of uh, the former sergeant as uh, disgusting. Uh, Can you tell us a a little bit about how that meeting came about uh, and what was said to you? Uh, Well, I was asked um, by the Commissioner uh, to meet and on the day it was appropriate that we would have met uh, at that location. I believed we were going to meet in the hotel, but as it turned out, uh, we sat into my car and the meeting was held in the car park. Um, And he relayed stories to me about Morris McCabe, I suppose the damage, um, my support for Morris McCabe and to... Uh, you know, make me think as to whether I was right or wrong, uh, and whether the Public Accounts Committee was right or wrong uh, in having these hearings into um, what was going on uh, in, in the police force at that time. Uh, I'm glad that, you know, I made the decision knowing Morris McCabe, I believed him. Uh, and of course, after that, it was then, you know, Public Accounts Committee uh, hearing and Later on, I did mention publicly that I had met him. I'm glad that I did. Uh, and uh, all of that is, you know... Did you doubt yourself? Uh, I mean, uh, you know, I, I know the allegation was false, but for people who are, aren't aware of it, uh, he did say to you that Morris McCabe was a child abuser. Uh, did you doubt yourself uh, when he made that false allegation? Um, of course, when you would meet with someone as senior as that within the police force and you're told these horrific stories, uh, you certainly walk away. I walked away from that meeting, you know, uh, quite fearful that I had taken uh, the wrong direction, that perhaps he was right. Um, but then I had to take the weekend and, and consider all of what was said to me uh, by Morris McCabe. And I made the decision that, no, that Morris McCabe, I believed him. Um, and I believed him because he gave evidence to every single, um, I suppose, accusation and fault that he found. He was able to produce the evidence and say, there, you, th- th- there is the penalty points issue. Uh, the members of the Public Accounts Committee saw all of the paperwork. Um, so we were quite clear. Um, and it was for me then to decide whether or not I was going to believe the commissioner are to believe Morris McCabe. And I'm quite satisfied, looking back now, uh, that I took the right decision. But I have to say that at that time, Mm. uh, I was certainly very unsure. And were you unsure then about the allegation? Uh, Apart from the penalty points, if you put that to one side, were you unsure about Morris McCabe? Uh, No, I wasn't. I I, I took Mm. time to reflect on what the Mm. Commissioner had said. um, And I favoured um, the account given uh, by Morris McCabe um, based on the fact that he was a man that had not only a complaint to make but he had you know, come forward in a very public way and had stayed delivering the same story over and over again and I don't think anyone would put themselves into that position if mm-hmm. they were wrong. So it not- also came across in his character that he was um, a truthful individual that he was he was honest, uh, and that he was proud of his uniform. Mm. Uh, and that was hugely important for him, 
And what he was attempting to do was to remove the stain from that uniform. Uh, and, and as I said to you, he stood mm-hmm. proud in that uniform before the Public Accounts Committee. Uh, and I believe that Maurice McCabe gave uh, a great account of himself uh, at huge personal cost to him and his family. Mm. Uh, indeed, uh, I think uh, back five years ago, as it was, uh, he was telling the Public Accounts Committee that he wouldn't have come forward with uh, the complaints about penalty points being quashed because of the impact it was having on him, his family and his career, but he did. Uh, and that was really just the beginning of this story. Uh, but if you look uh, back on that meeting that you had with the Chief of Police, the Garda Commissioner, Martin Callanan, in a car park, uh, telling you that Morris McCabe was a, a kiddie fiddler, a child abuser, uh, and you believed that to be wrong. What did you, which it was, obviously, what did, did you, and it must be said that you went on to tell the tribunal all of this, but what did you believe was going on uh, in terms of the Garda Commissioner? Did, did you believe he was intentionally setting out to smear Morris McCabe? And that, that, that is quite clear now that that was the intention and that Morris McCabe was targeted by, targeted by mm. senior officers within the force. But it was also true to say that uh, the, the purpose of this was to derail the investigation into all of this, mm. um, all of what Morris McCabe was saying and the accusations he was making, uh, to derail the Public Accounts Committee hearing. But it, it must have been uh, very difficult for you to get your head around that back then, given that this was the Garda Commissioner. It was indeed, and difficult too, because it was it was the system um, protecting itself, and I never expected that, that it would go that far in the in, in the context of uh, you know protecting itself, uh, and I expected that Morris McCabe should have been given more uh, respect and a greater hearing. So there was an awful lot of um, conflicts, uh, you know, at, at that time, in terms of the consideration of where the Public Accounts Committee was actually going um, with this issue. And was it right? Was this the right direction? Uh, and quite frankly, had I not taken mm. the decision um, to ignore what I was being told and to believe in Morris McCabe, well then, what came out in the end would never have come out. And thank God that it did, and hopefully it will make a, a difference going forward. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning, though. That's uh, Fianna Fáil TD, John McGuinness, who was uh, the chair of uh, the Public Accounts Committee, currently the chair of the Oireachtas Finance Committee. Michael Reid on LMFM. The UK's Brexit Secretary Dominic Raab is suggesting uh, that there could be a withdrawal agreement put in place by the 21st of November. Let's hope so, say all of us. Paddy Malone, Piero with Dundalk Chamber of Commerce is on the line. Good morning, Paddy. Good morning, Michael. Uh, are you optimistic? Uh, no. <laughs> I mean, mainly because within a, about four or five hours of actually issuing that letter, uh, there was a, an explanation issued that all he was doing was that his he was fit to see a committee on the 21st of November. He didn't mean to say that it would be um, finished by the 21st of November. So it's extremely disappointing that the language that was used in the letter wasn't more precise as to what it was me- meant to say. Right. Uh, there is also talk of a, a deal on financial services uh, with uh, the UK uh, following European uh, rules in relation to this, uh, which could be uh, overcoming a, a big stumbling block and could be part of uh, the uh, 
cogs that make up this deal. Yeah, and it looks like it, it, it was always one of those things that was critically important to the UK, that the city, as they call it, would be left intact or would left to be the dominant force in European uh, affairs. That, you know, that was one area where if there was a, a plus side on Brexit from the uh, Irish point of view, that was one of the pluses. And, for example, Citibank and, and Morgan Stanley and a few mm. others have indicated that they were moving into the IFSC. Uh, myself uh, in the chamber and draw the chamber and Louth County Council uh, through the Leo were working on an initiative and are we will be releasing it later in the month, partly targeting financial services companies. So, you know, it's good news from a European point of view, not quite so good news. We were hoping to get some small positive thing out of the out of Brexit. But yeah. look, if it if it if it manages to put the city and get the Tory party on side to actually realise that they've got to do a deal on the overall situation and we're back to this old situation of nothing's agreed till it's all agreed. If the city now have skin in the game as it would be put, uh, that pressure will, will mount on the Conservative Brexiteers. And when them. you say that we were hoping to get something, something out of it that some of these companies would have relocated here. Yeah, I don't, mm-hmm. we were never going to get what they call the first tier. In other words, mm-hmm. the Morgan Stanleys or the mm-hmm. city banks of this world. They had indicated they were moving to um, Dublin. But those, for example, Morgan Stanley are bringing a thousand jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, those companies themselves need a huge number of little companies that support them. Now, at the moment in the UK, it's estimated that something like 50%, maybe even higher, of jobs that are city-related actually aren't based in the city itself. They can't afford the rents. It's just like a lot of people can't afford the rents in the IFSC. But as long as they're within touching distance, they're fine. And the zero system that has been put in by Vodafone and the, um, the by, by Vodafone and the SB into this into this network, we have the strongest internet connections in Europe, both Dundalk and Drada. And that was we were hoping to actually piggyback on that and say to people, look, you don't have to if you want if you need to support Morgan Stanley and you have to be in the in the vicinity. You don't actually have to be in the IFSC. You can be in the dock. You're within an hour's drive, an hour's uh, train journey or an hour's bus to the IFSC. Therefore, you can still look along the M1 corridor and, and, and take your spot. So it's a bit disappointing from just a pure, purely parochial mm. point of view. But I still say if, the, if, the, if there is an overall deal done which stabilises the situation with Northern Ireland and the Republic, it's a win for us. Okay, but seen as a, a positive move for Britain by the currency markets with a, an increase in the value of sterling as a, a result of this, uh, the Times in London reporting on that particular deal, which is said to be all but done this morning, but the same article says that Brexiteers are concerned uh, that Theresa May may be preparing to back down, back down on an element of the Irish border issue issue uh, ahead of uh, the 17th of November summit uh, and that uh, there's an agreed approach on the negotiating position at British cabinet level and that there will be no more Brexit meetings before that meeting in November. So they're obviously clear on what way they're going to approach this, whether it's one uh, that is agreeable or not is the next question. Yeah, well, look, I think the reality of the situation is that the UK government, when it started and when uh, David Davis made these statements about they'd solve the Northern Ireland problem in two hours over a cup of tea and things like that. The UK, our Brexiteers are still living in a false situation. The reality is biting. And 
uh, I believe that at the end of the day that um, they will realise that the UK cannot use its muscle because it does, it's not powerful enough to tell the EU what to do. Um, so the Brexiteers are going to have to settle to these things. Mm. Theresa May is already trying to edge the party closer and closer to a customs union that will be open-ended. Um, and the, the Europeans have moved from the point of view of saying uh, there has to be specialty with Northern Ireland to, I think now at this stage, saying, mm. well, Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom can be incorporated into one, provided it's open-ended. So you can see where this is going, that will be, unfortunately for the Brexiteers, they're going to be in the worship, and Britain, they're going to be in the worship of both worlds. They, they won't have left and there won't have any say in what's going on. Well, if there needs to be compromise, there'll have to be compromise on all sides, and uh, perhaps uh, the compromise on the Irish side is on a, a digital tax. Yeah, I was ex- half expecting you to say that one to me. When I when I listened to the budget, uh, the UK budget on Monday, um, mm. and they just came up about taxing Facebook and Google at 3%, the first person I thought about was you, because you and I have discussed this situation quite a lot. Um, I think the Irish government will be worried that... Um, our competitive advantage in attracting Facebook and Google would be damaged. However, if it's done on a European-wide basis and it's seen that uh, there would be no advantage in moving from Ireland, I, I think the Irish government could probably swallow it. Mm. Well, they may have to. Uh, yes, because I think they are. Yeah, uh, I think it, twelve it, and a half. I think we've got so much goodwill on the Brexit point point of view that we have to be flexible in our approach. And that was something that the Irish government had said anyway. This tax consolidation new scheme which is coming out. We never had a problem with that. I mean, people seem to think that we did. We never did. The only thing that we were sacrosanct on was the 12.5% rate. Mm. Well, I'm not sure that uh, it'll go down well with the Irish government. Uh, I think Helen McEntee uh, was speaking to us recently saying that they uh, weren't aware of this and would be opposed to the idea, but it does appear that uh, there's pressure coming on the Irish government and it may uh, be necessary in return for the ongoing support of our European partners. I think we can't, like just like the British can't have their cake and eat it and want to be, you know, want to have mm. all things to all people, it's not possible. And we've got to be flexible in, in that respect as well. As long as we retain our competitive advantage compared to other countries in Europe for FDI, particularly American, foreign direct investment, I don't think we've anything to worry about. All right. Uh, there is always the risk with these things of talking ourselves into a, a crisis. Uh, we've learned that from recent history that you can compound an already bad situation. But confidence is low, it would seem, according to a KBC survey. Uh, consumer confidence uh, here uh, is dripping more than in other European countries because of fears about Brexit. Well, I think it's... You know, it's inevitable. We're beside a very big neighbour, and when they get cold, we get pneumonia. Uh, and we've got to, we've always lived in the shadow of the UK. We've always had to a certain extent accept what the UK said. If we look back to the 50s and 60s, we had to take world prices for our beef and, and, and our uh, agricultural products. Uh, we were left very much as the second or as what my father used to describe it, the hind tit, uh, in a situation like that, you know. Um, so we are naturally concerned. The one thing I would say to you, and I already got this news literally ten sec- a minute ago before I started talking to you, and I didn't think we'd get onto this sort of thing. Um, we've noticed that our shop local vouchers for the Christmas period are actually well up on where we thought they'd be. So employers are actually going out and, and buying Christmas bonuses. 
Okay. So it may mean not quite as bad as we thought. Well, absolutely. And uh, obviously it's the time of the year for that. And uh, hopefully uh, the currency will uh, make it even better. Uh, because yeah. uh, The only thing we were hopeful was that the government would have actually increased the tax-free benefit on it but they didn't. Okay, well, we'll encourage everybody to shop local and leave it on that note for the moment. And thank you indeed for joining us as always. That's Paddy Malone, who's uh, the Dundalk Chamber of Commerce, Piero. Michael Reed on LMFM. If you're waiting for a hospital appointment, well, you're not the only one. Uh, and it's the same across uh, the country, but figures given to Fianna Fáil TD Shane Castles show that over 6,000 people are waiting on an outpatient appointment at Our Lady's Hospital in Navan. You may have seen that on the front page of the Mead Chronicle this week. Sinn Féin councillor Darren O'Rourke is a member of the Regional Health Forum and joins us now. And that's a, a lot of people, but it's a story that is Applicated right across the country, obviously. Oh, absolutely, Michael. Um, I think there's in the region of 515,000 people on outpatient waiting lists uh, across the country. And what's worse is that the figures are getting worse year on year and increasingly so. So um, it's the case that we're not addressing the problem. Um, and and the, the outpatient waiting lists are a symptom of the crisis in our health services. So um, it's a congestion point um, for, 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 for the service and it, it's a result of a number of things, lack of capacity, generally speaking, but also, you know, the, the, the range of incentives, perverse incentives that exist in the Irish healthcare system. And, and I think there's an interesting statistic in relation to, to these figures. And sometimes it's not a fair reflection just to look at the, the round figure of 515,000 because 515,000 wouldn't be an issue if we were, um, moving 50,000 people off that list on a weekly or monthly basis, you know, um, so I think the important thing is, is you know, and, and really disappointing thing in relation to these figures is the amount of people that are waiting a long time on those lists. Well, so, some great, of these appointments great. are for minor reasons uh, as such, and some of them are for very serious conditions uh, and need urgent attention or may prevent uh, somebody from getting sicker, as uh, the case may be. But uh, as you say, the question is how soon people are seen. Uh, you can't expect to be seen overnight. You get an appointment and you're going to have to wait a day or two or a week or two or a month or two. Uh, the HSE says that 72% of the people in Navin are seen within a year. Is that acceptable? Well, it's most certainly not. And that was the point I was going to make, Michael. So how do we do in Ireland compared to to other countries? And if we look to our nearest neighbour, we can see that either 28% in Navan or 27% in the the, uh, Ireland East Hospital Group um, are not seen within 12 months. How do our nearest neighbours do? Well, um, in Britain, 0.05% 0.05% of their of their lists are seen. Um, it takes longer than 12 months. So that means that in Britain, they are literally 560 times better than we are at addressing their, their, their waiting list. So 560 times worse we are in, 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 in this state, which I think is a, a really, really stark figure. And your point is, is a correct one. So mm. we have people waiting, and, and there, there are numerous examples of this. So 
um, you have people waiting for elective procedures, for example, a hip or a knee. Um, whilst they're on those waiting lists, their condition is deteriorating. There's an increased cost for for uh, um, medications. There's the increased risks of falls and, and uh, um, the need for more acute and more expensive care. So, in effect, the health service is, is you know, cutting off its nose to spite its face. It is costing it a lot more in the long run to uh, to you know run an inefficient waiting list service and and, and that's that's a that's a major problem and it's reflective of the problems within the system more generally and, and Sinn Féin has put forward proposals um that have been employed in, in, in some areas um the, the idea of co-lista which is a a single list system where um where where patients can move between lists um to to be seen in a more efficient way and you know there are lots of of you know it's a complex matter and there are lots of of factors that 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 lead to the the lengths of these waiting lists but but ultimately it is one of capacity and inefficiencies within the system yeah, and uh, there's getting onto a, a list for that matter because uh, there was a, a time, at least, where there were lists of people waiting to go on to waiting lists. Yeah, yeah, and and, and that, I, I think some of the difficulty, Michael, um, in terms of those tasked with trying to address these problems. You know, there I, I mentioned the issue of, of per- perverse incentives here. So, so there, we the, the government solution, short term solution, is to invest in the national uh, treatment purchase fund. Um, there are per- perverse incentives I- in relation to that. Um, we have private uh, practice happening on public hospital grounds and on public hospital time. Um, we have incentive you know tax breaks mm. for people to to build um nursing homes to you know that then um supports the the people being discharged from hospital and with so 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 you have a system made up uh, in my opinion of incentives that are uh driven by by profit uh, and we don't have a system that at its very core has the public interest at its heart. And I but, think but it is it, very uh, busy, isn't it? Uh, and I mean, there's a, a lot of people that are being seen by the public system. If uh, over 70% of uh, 6,000 people have to, uh, or are seen within a, a year, you're talking about 4,000 people uh, being seen uh, every year. Oh, no, for sure, for sure. And, and uh, like, I'm a, I'm a health service worker, so I know how busy mm. our service is. It's, it's, and it's, it's been very busy in the last 24 hours, as, as you might imagine, with, with, mm. with Halloween and all of that. Uh, but, um, yeah, the, the system is busy and people are working very hard. And I, and I think it is safe to say that people working within the system, and I know my colleagues in, in nursing and, and, and other uh, sectors are to some degree demoralised by the huge effort they're putting in and you know they see nothing but uh, increasing queues you know I, 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 I've spoken to, to nursing colleagues and they said I, I spend most of my time um, cancelling appointments with people I spend you know mm. breaking bad news to people that you know sorry your appointment was scheduled but it's not it's not going to happen because you know for the for the range of different reasons and and that's that's a problem I, I think the slauncher care proposals I, I I get frustrated when I hear people saying that you know it's it's impossible to to solve the the health service or it's like Angola or whatever the the, the, the analogy was it's not we we can see in other places how we can get our health services right it will take a strong uh, leader like Nye Bevan or or, or 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 his equivalent of Simon Harris or 
or Louise O'Reilly wants to be that person. Mm. Um, I know which one I'd have confidence in. <laughs> okay. But, um, but the, the opportunity is there with this launch care proposals to actually, you know, uh, tackle the, the, the real crisis. If, in, only in we could, if only we could agree how to fund it. Uh, but we have to leave it there. And thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Sinn Féin Councillor Darren O'Rourke, a member of uh, the Regional Health Forum, brings our programme to its conclusion today our time has run out once again a podcast available on our website lmfm.ie this afternoon and God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM good morning bye bye The Michael Reed Show podcast tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM to contact us email now michael at lmfm.ie Even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.